Welcome to the Not Old Better Show author interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and we have an excellent program as we pull back the curtain on the life and career of NFL legend Larry Zonka, a member of the undefeated Miami Dolphins. Hasn't happened since. Hadn't happened before. A perfect season and a life well-lived. You're going to want to hear this. Thanks so much for listening today. As I say, we have got a great guest today who, after reading his new book, I have been looking forward to talking to him. We're going to introduce him in just a moment, but quickly, if you've missed any episodes, last week was our 677th episode, and I spoke to Smithsonian Associate Carol Adrian about her new book, Healing a Divided Nation. Two weeks ago, I had another amazing interview with author and Smithsonian Associate Jonathan Friedland, an award-winning author who has written the amazing book, The Escape Artist. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. If you missed those shows along with any others, you can go back and check them out along with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. And if you leave a review, we will read it at the end of each show. Please leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts for us. Larry Zonka's amazing life will come to life today in his own authentic voice and unfiltered brand of storytelling. We will hear today about Larry Zonka's insightful, compelling, humorous, vulnerable, and refreshingly frank life in the NFL and growing up in Ohio as an active kid. For fans of the game or anyone who loves high adventure, Larry Zonka's new book, which is excellent, titled Head On, is a captivating, nostalgic account of grit, grace, and gumption told by an iconic Hall of Famer who continues to gain ground figuratively, literally, and unapologetically every single day. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show author interview series on radio and podcast, the Miami Dolphins undefeated head-on author, Larry Zonka. Larry Zonka, welcome to the program today. Well, it's good to be here. Well, it's my age, it's good to be anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) I I hear you about that, you know. It is, uh, it's cold where we are, but but happy day before Thanksgiving, sir. Are you cooking? Are you traveling? Are you eating? Are you you waiting to watch football? What's going to happen? Well, a little little bit of all of those. uh, We just purchased a place on on top of a mountain in the west, very western uh, North Carolina, and we're getting used to it. And uh, it's good. I'm looking forward to it. We're going to be at home and going to cook a turkey, just Audrey and I, and uh, just stay at home this Thanksgiving and watch some football. Oh, that sounds pretty darn good. We, we kind of are doing about the same thing. It's just the two of us. My wife and I are empty nesters, so we're just going to kind of stay put and uh, uh, watch some football too. Um, the Giants are preparing for a divisional fight against Dallas tomorrow. That's going to be a great game. I want to talk to you about about all this stuff, including your book, Head On. I just am excited to to just jump right in. Well, you say you're in North Carolina today. I want to I want to ask you about Ohio for just a second. What what do you remember about being raised in Ohio? Because that that's a wonderful part of our country. How did that how did that shape you? Because my wife is from the Midwest, and there is that kind of that Midwestern ethic. You know, I know as a football player that shaped you. How about as a person too? Well, I think Ohio is a hotbed of football enthusiasm, Western Pennsylvania and Eastern Ohio, particularly in the area that I grew up. I grew up on a farm, which is a perfect setting for a pre-football career. I grew up with uh, cattle around me, all kinds of critters. Uh, you know, I, I had uh, 
20 acres that we actually own, my father actually owned, but it was in between two huge four or 500 acre dairy farms. So I was around milk cows and cattle and all kinds of uh, barnyard animals, as well as a lot of wild animals that were around in the woods. Not, not necessarily grizzly bears, of course, because being in Ohio is black bear country and rarely did we see one of those. But at the same time, we had a lot of smaller game, raccoons, hawks, uh, you know, owls, all the things that a teenage or young, young fellow would be interested in seeing in the woods and collecting. So I had a variety of pets and had to keep up with a garden and had to learn to handle animals from the time that I was uh, big enough to walk and be around them. What a great place to grow up. I, 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 we love animals here. We live in northern Virginia. We got all kinds of critters all around us. It's also a great place for kids to, you know, kind of do their thing still even to this day. And, and, and you did some of that. You, you had a little couple of run-ins. You got a little maybe – maybe off track a bit at some moments in your life, as has happened, certainly did for me too. How'd you get back on track and find your way to football? Well, growing up in Stowe, Ohio, which was roughly about uh, 20 miles from Akron, we were in the uh, very suburban area, right on the edge of uh, where the big farm started. And so for me to get in trouble, you know, we go downtown and when I talk about trouble and not <laughs> probably not the kind of trouble you get in downtown New York or downtown Miami, but at the same mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. trouble seems to be an attractive thing for 10 and 11 year old boys to get into. <laughs> so around Halloween, we borrowed some bicycles once and uh, rode the eight miles back from Akron on those bicycles and threw them down and uh, got, her, got into trouble with the juvenile system for, uh, we got seen throwing the bikes down. And uh, of course it turned out we had, they said we stole them. Well, we just feared we borrowed them, but that isn't how the judge saw it. So I ended up in front of a juvenile court judge and I had been in trouble on a couple other things that uh, over the, over the previous year or so. So I was starting to go down the wrong trail and that juvenile court judge did me a tremendous favor because he was friends with my uh, junior high principal, a fellow named Mr. Saldis, who was an old football coach, retired, been through the second world war. And was uh, our junior high uh, principal, and he was a disciplinarian, a strong-willed coach. And he looked at me and said, "Why don't you? Have you ever tried football? Instead of getting in all this trouble?" And I said, uh, "Yes, sir. I went out for it for one year, but I I quit because." He said, "Why?" I said, "Well, I got all I did was stand around holding a dummy for the older kids and get knocked <laughs> down." I said, "I can do that at home with the whole scenes. I can get knocked down anytime." And he said, well, he said, I think what we're going to do is, uh, he said, what's your last class every day? And I said, study hall. And he said, that's fine. He said, you don't no longer go to study hall. You come to my office. And he gave me a bevy of books to read about pro football and semi-pro football and the basics of football. And then would design tests for me to, to quiz me on what was happening on the field because he knew that the important thing for a kid to go out for football was knowing how to what, where you stood at what position and how you figured into the game plan. He knew that I was ignorant of that. And if I had that knowledge, it would make a difference. And I'll tell you what, it did, Paul. Yeah, did it ever. What a career. And, and you talk about and head on all of these great stories. But I, I, I want to touch on that. So because book learning and football – you know, probably not all, not every player is doing that. What, what did it do to set you apart from some of the other well, players? There's a tremendous confidence uh, that comes when you go out on any kind of field to, to play a team sport by knowing what's happening around you, 
whether it's basketball, baseball, football, soccer, whatever it is. Having that basic knowledge of where who the players are, where they line up, what their function is, what, what probably is going to happen at the snap of the ball and the action starts. If you have that and, and have, a, have a general understanding of how it works and where you fit in depending on the position you're playing, that's a tremendous asset. Uh, in my opinion, tackle football is something that, that kids under the age of uh, 11 or 12 shouldn't play. They should play, you know, touch football, or they should play um, something a little less violent. Now, once you reach the age of maturity, you start to start to change around 11 or 12, in my opinion, my guess. I think then, uh, you know, tackle football should be there for you. Uh, you're, you're old enough to understand getting hit and getting hit hard and getting up and, and preparing yourself. You're old enough to protect yourself, I guess, is what I'm driving at. And that's, uh, that's pretty much what happened with me uh, after going to Mr. Solis's office and studying the positions and knowing what, what you had to do as a linebacker versus as a running back, a general understanding of what's going to happen at the snap of the ball, depending on what position you're at, uh, gave me an understanding and made me feel a little more at home on the football field. And that was a tremendous, tremendous asset. And I can't emphasize that enough to people that want to take the book, read the book. I talk about that. But exercise that with your kids. Uh, I really, I didn't want my sons, my two boys are growing now, and I have grandchildren that are getting to the age where they're going to start to play. And I think it's a good idea to be involved in touch football right up till you're about 11 or 12. And then, then you make the move to really uh, to go on the field with the idea of, uh, you know, tackling someone and knocking someone down or getting knocked down. I think uh, that, that needs to be around mm-hmm. the age of maturity. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll bet your, your boys – you know, we're going to possess that that wonderful Zonka name. What, what a great football name. And you you always just embraced it. I, I, you know, I remember it well. I know it well. Many of my audience will just know that Zonka name so well. Perfect for football. You played defense, famously played football, fullback for uh, in, in college and um, and at the Dolphins in the in the pros. But you had a deal that you struck in college with your coach at, at Syracuse, and, and I, I wonder because I think he wanted you to play linebacker. Maybe is that, that perhaps that's that's the position? Oh, absolutely. What happened with that? Yeah, absolutely. That turned things. <laughs> <laughs> he visited when Coach Schwartzwalder was the head coach, and he had had uh, Jim Brown, Ernie Davis, um, <laughs> Floyd Little. Uh, those those are the kind of players that he had had playing running back for him, you know, so he knew about running the ball. And that's kind of why I was leaning towards Syracuse. I really wanted to run the ball, but I had excelled at uh, defensive end and linebacker, probably a little more than I had at fullback in high school. And when he came to visit me and talk to me about the possibility of going to Syracuse, I was very interested in Syracuse. But the reason I was, was that I might have a shot at running back. So if he told me that I absolutely didn't have a, a shot at running back, then I would have looked a little harder and longer at Ohio State or perhaps Clemson. And as a result of meeting with him, I spoke with him. Ben Schwartzalder was a very uh, down-to-earth, direct guy, kind of guy that you like to play ball for if you're a running back. He used to say that uh, three things happen when you throw the ball and two of them are bad. <laughs> That's the kind of coach you want to play for if you want to run the ball. Yeah. So he came and recruited me, but he recruited me again, Paul, as a defensive end or as a middle linebacker. And when we got all done talking and he offered me the uh, four-year scholarship to Syracuse, I, I just looked him right in the eye, knowing his ex-military uh, record. I knew he's a guy you could, if he said it, you could trust it. 
And I stood up and said, I, I'd like to accept that and do that on one condition. And he kind of cleared his throat and pushed his glasses up the way Ben always did, <laughs> waiting for me to tell him I wanted to do Buick or something. <laughs> and, uh, then he looked right at me and said, what would that be? And I said, your word that I'll, I'll have a fair shot at uh, running back my, my freshman year and that you'll take a look at that and we can have a conversation about it. And you'll at least consider me being a running back. And he didn't answer right away. Another, another sign that he was for real. He, he thought about it for a moment, then looked back at me, stuck his hand out, said, I think we have a deal. He said, now understand it. He said, I will give you the look, but I will make the decision based on what you do as your freshman year. Back then, the freshman couldn't play with a varsity. You had to play uh, just individual freshman games, and you got to practice a little with the varsity at the end of the season, but that was about it. Then your sophomore year, you had a shot, and that's what I was counting on was to get, uh, get that look. And, of course, that worked out. But Ben was a man of his word, and uh, that's why I went to Syracuse. That was the deal that was struck. We're, of course, with Larry Zonka, NFL legend member of the undefeated Miami Dolphins. Hasn't happened since, hadn't before. Perfect season. We're talking about Larry Zonka's life, his career, his wonderful new book, Head On. We're going to put links to our audience, can find out more information about Head On, and all that uh, Larry Zonka has done. He's got a great website. I just encourage you to check that out along with his new book, Head On. Let's talk for just a moment, Larry Zonka, about the Miami Dolphins um, because you had another great coach uh, there, Shula, who came in. Um, he really, you know, of course, turned that team around, but you guys didn't necessarily immediately hit it off. <laughs> How did you know that Coach Sula was the right one there for you? Oh, for I, the team, for you. I, I, Paul, would you say we didn't hit it off? That's an understatement of the year. I, <laughs> coach Shula came in from Baltimore. Sorry. Coach Shula came in as the head coach that had been let go or had run into problems at Baltimore and left, you know, at the hands of uh, Joe Namath. And I guess what Super Bowl three or four around in there had lost to the uh, had lost to the Jets and was on rough uh, rough turf with his owner up there in Baltimore and had come to the Dolphins. But if you look at Shula's history, you know, he was a defensive back when he played, uh, when he was around the Browns and, and so on. He, you know, he, he played as a defensive back. And then in his coaching career, the things that stand out was his passing attack. Uh, you know, having played defensive back, uh, he really knew about the passing attack. And uh, goodness, Johnny Unitas, uh, you know, <laughs> the list goes on and on of it. Of the of the of the, all the uh, passing uh, strategy that he used at Baltimore. So for me, as a power fullback, looking trying to put together some offensive line and imitate Green Bay or something like that, um, I didn't I didn't think I had any future at all with him. And we did not hit it off right off the bat. I, he said, told us when he got in front of us the first time, right after he had signed the deal with Miami and became the new head coach in 1970. He got in front of us in a team meeting and said, you'll address me as coach. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about team business in front of the team or during the time. And you'll address me as coach. But if you come into my office one-on-one -on -one with me, shut the door, you can address me as Don or however you feel like you should address me. And he said, we'll be on one-to-one -one in a straight, uh, straight from the shoulder basis. In other words, man-to-man. -man. So I was, the, I don't know if I was the first guy or the second, but I was one of the top. Top first three 
<laughs> and I walked in the room, shut the door, turned around. He said, what do you think? I said, I don't think I like you. <laughs> and he said, uh, well, we have something in common because I don't care for you either. <laughs> That's how we started off. He said, I said, well, I think I'm probably here to see you to see about maybe getting traded or something. He said, I've looked into that. He said, I, I don't think I can get too much for you. So uh, <laughs> we're going to have to get past that, you know. <laughs> that's brutal, but that's, see, that was just he and that's I brutal. in the office and whatever was talked about in that office stayed in that office. And, you know, afterwards, when you, you sit down and uh, write a memoir, then you can talk about those things. But for the rest of my career, I never said anything about that and neither did he. And as we started to develop and we had a line coach named Monty Clark, who was an old offensive tackle from Cleveland that, that blocked for uh, Jimmy Brown. He started to put our offensive line together as an assistant, new assistant coach under Shula. And suddenly my world started to light up the power of uh, the possibility of being involved in a power running game for Miami became a real, real possibility. And I was excited about that. Then things started to go a lot better. I started to realize that all the things that Shula was talking about <laughs> weren't just hooey. He was, he was laying it on the line the way he wanted to direct the team and I saw an opportunity, a great opportunity to fit in. So I followed the rules as best I could. The memoir, of course, is titled Head On. Larry Zonk is our guest today, author of the wonderful book, getting great reviews to Larry Zonk. I just want to encourage our audience to go check this book out. One of the things that I learned, too, in the book that I, I just did not know, I didn't realize, because NFL today is is very different than it than it was then. Miami's very different city today than it, than it was then. How did the Dolphins really kind of bring Miami together? Because there were a lot of things kind of going on in and around Miami at that time. And, of course, you had a new coach in, in Don Shula. It was a relatively new team. It was a much different time in the NFL. Lots of stuff came together, and, and you guys really brought that city together. Well, Paul, in 1968 and 69, uh, you, you remember all the Vietnam War was going on, the uh, – the uh, boat lift from Cuba and Miami was right in the mix of all of that combined with already having some pretty tough racial problems that were going on. It was a city in turmoil. And when Shula came in uh, and, and started to exercise his plan and started to win, we started to become a factor. In other words, people started to really look forward to come to the games and the great thing about the Orange Bowl is it was located in probably the toughest, roughest section of all of uh, Miami. And with, with all that cross-section, uh, Cuban backgrounds, black backgrounds, all those things came together right there. It was a great melting pot. And Shula, our coach he is, brought that team together and told us, listen, you, you're going to have uh, parking passes the day of the game. You park where the, the general uh, uh, fans park in the same parking lot. You get here early, park your car, come inside, you know, we'll have a pregame meeting and so on. So we got there an hour or two ahead of the game, but we parked in those same places and got to know the other folks that were coming in in that area. And believe me when I tell you that the, when he first came in 1970, you could get in zone seats for like $2 a game. Wow. So, <laughs> we had a lot of folks from that area of Miami, that rough area of Miami showing up and filling the end zones for like two bucks or buck 50 to two bucks a head. And as a result of that, when we started to win, they got enthusiastic 
And that's, I think, to get, answer your question, I think there was a great cross-section of people there, Spanish, black, all the difference, all the differences in the world in downtown Miami, particularly in that area of the Orange Bowl. But they started to come together, and what we do after the game is the players would go out, and those folks would still be there. They lived with just a stone's throw from the Orange Bowl. So they would still be there when we came out, and instead of going, getting in the car and going right home, we would come out and enjoy the camaraderie of the fans sit around the charcoal pits, have hot dogs and maybe a cold beer once in a while and enjoy talking with the kids and the folks that were there. And that started to bring people that were factionized together because they had a common interest and it was the team. And it was fun to be part of that and see that actually happening right there in the parking lots. You know, the Orange Bowl was a part of a city venue and technically the mayor had <laughs> decided it should be closed at, you know, two hours after the game. But because he saw what was happening there at the time, they just left the gates open and told the city police, keep an eye on it, but just drive by. Don't, you know, so pretty soon we had the city cops in there sitting with us right around the barbecue pit and enjoying. And it was great to see people making friends that were from very different backgrounds and different ethnic groups and, and very divided, but coming together over football. And that started to work. And as it did, that's when the 12th man syndrome started to develop. If you've ever been in the old Orange Bowl, you know that there was a, the fans were right down next to the field. And when we had a packed house and we had both end zones full of people, and, you know, if you were the visiting quarterback and down close to that, that end zone, the roar of the 12th man syndrome, the fans would just uh, go crazy and raise so much cane. You couldn't hear yourself think, let alone call signals. So it, it really became, they became incorporated in it and uh, they took pride in that. And when you start to have that kind of pride from the winning operation and from being a part of it in the action, um, you start to have a little more, I don't know, I guess, patience, camaraderie, those kind of things blossomed out of that and, and really, I think, was a very positive, uh, positive asset for Miami. Yeah, most definitely. It was a wonderful time. Well, speaking, speaking of friends, I want to talk for just a second about uh, a friend, uh, the late Jim Kick. Um, you and he were, were quite a pair, nicknamed at one point Butch and Sundance. I think, I think you were Sundance. You guys had these amazing uh, roles on the team, uh, off the field, too. Um, a great, a great profile was written of you both in Sports Illustrated, and you you're on the cover, famously, uh, with a with a gesture of your finger laid across <laughs> your your shin. There, that was an amazing. Well, let me tell you about that. <laughs> you please do. Let please. me tell you. Wait a minute. Let me tell. Wait. Let me tell you about how that happened. Okay, sir. They came into right after practice in nineteen before the seventy two season in training camp of all places. Sports Illustrated came in and said, hey, we want to like put you, uh, feature you on the cover. I said, hey, great. We'd love to be on the cover. Sure. So we went out and took pictures after practice. After one of Shula's two-day practices, 90-degree heat, we went out and took, took uh, oh, two hours worth of pictures doing different things, you know, the Butch and Sundance thing and the, and the pads and the whole thing and uh, by the, by the goalpost. And then as a lark, I said, hey, I'm going to shoot <laughs> the bird in one of these. And, and you just give me that picture. I'd like to get a picture of that to put on my yeah. wall for a novelty yeah. item for me and Jim being funny. That somehow ended up on the cover of Sports <laughs> Illustrated. That picture was taken for our use, no one else's, but uh, somehow oh, it ended up goodness. on the cover. 
And I, let me tell you something. Having grown up Catholic, I heard from a lot of uh, nuns that were very upset oh, with me for yeah. about a year. After. That is such a great story. Yeah, that issue is a collector's item. Uh, we will put a link up to where people can see that. But yeah, my, my audience, many of my audience will remember very well. I'm sure you heard from uh, uh, from all manner of, uh, of friends and family and the nuns there at Catholic school. <laughs> I just, I just thought those, those were just some amazing times that the the book head on again is just filled with those kinds of. It's just getting just these wonderful reviews, and I wanted to talk for just a second about the title because it, it again head on it it really vaguely I suppose made me think about um, CTE uh, of course uh, the late Jim Kick uh, made me think about Jim a little bit made me think about Tua this season uh, sure. dementia and sure. yep. All of this stuff that's kind of going on. I wonder, was that your intention with the title? Is is it because it definitely is very pointed? But maybe tell us more broadly what what it, what is going on with head trauma in the game today, and and uh, as well as other eras, because it, it's been around. It's been, been well with us. to address that first. Sadly. That's certainly the most uh, critical uh, thing that you you're asking about. That is being addressed more than it's ever been addressed before in the history of the of the league. Uh, today and it should be uh, the rules have changed a great deal the game has changed a great deal it's much more competitive today because the passing game keeps teams that fall behind by a touchdown or more or two touchdowns or more by halftime can still win the game so it's still a very competitive game it's still very supportive but the contact has been greatly limited as compared to what it used to be particularly the uh, head trauma areas so there's still the possibility of that, and they're taking all the precautions they can with what they have to work with and what they know. But it's still, it's still, uh, still a concern. It's, it just doesn't seem to go away, but it, it's uh, hopefully being kept to the uh, kept to a minimum. So while it still exists, uh, that's you know that's the situation. But as far as as head on the title uh, that. Uh, that depicts a lot of mm-hmm. things. That's really, I, I kid about that. That's how I lived my mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, head on thing was, was just, you know, I, mm-hmm. I didn't mean to relate it to that necessarily, that, that kind of contact in football, but it fits and it, it fits that as well. But in my life, just being able to do what I wanted to do in the way I wanted to do it, whether I was a kid trying to work with cattle or, you know, trying to get to Alaska to go fishing, you know, head on was the way I approached the life. That was the lifestyle mm-hmm. I lived. It's just you. Yeah, it's a bold title. It, it just works again. The title of uh, Larry Zalka's new memoir is Head On. Was it as much fun for you to write as, as it has been for me to read? Because I tell you, this was just a fantastic <laughs> book. You just, you just done it, done a great job, Larry Zalka. Yeah. I, at first it was, uh, you know, I, my life partner, Audrey Bradshaw, the gal was with me and, and mm-hmm. still is. He spoke to, spoke you know, to Audrey, yeah. did all the planning for Alaska and was out on the Bering Sea with me when we got stranded and so on. Um, she came to me and said, you know, about the time that Coach Shula passed, I'd been talking about doing a memoir for some years and uh, talked to him about it a little bit, for, you know, three or four years ago. And then, of course, when he passed, I thought, you know, it, this is the time made me realize that, uh, you know, if I'm ever going to, I need to do it now. And she helped organize it. The toughest part, I mean, it's a lot of fun going back and reiterating the stories, reliving the stories. 
and you know, getting other uh, ball players that I played alongside of and against to, to put their opinion in, and then you mix the whole thing up and see what you come up with. <laughs> but a memoir says just that. You know, it's the way I remember it predominantly, and it's fun to go back and do that. But at the same time, about the fifteenth time that you go over each of those stories, they start to wear on you a little bit. And then the really tough part, and this is where it gets just, uh, as far as I'm concerned. It's kind of a, a nightmare part of it is what do you what do you cut when you have far more than what you can put in one book? What do you cut? Mm. And that was the toughest thing, I think, that Audrey and I went through was deciding what to leave out in order to shrink it down. So it's a it's a readable book. And of course, we did that. But there's still a lot that was unsaid. And that's why we're entertaining maybe doing another book mm. about the, uh, the Alaska experience and, and getting into that a little more with the second book, but we try to cover all the football, particularly the undefeated season. We wanted that to be a feature, but it's not all the book is about. It's about all the things that led up to that, how that happened. And then all the things we did after that, including a little bit of a tease, two or three chapters about Alaska and how we, how we fared up there. Mm -hmm. And Alaska, you're referring to Wasilla. Uh, that's where you, you, you both live there in Wasilla, Alaska. Is that right? Yeah, I bought a home there. Uh, we did the show up there for probably close to 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we did like 16 mm-hmm. or 17 years of actual shows, but, but we were there a little earlier and then, you know, we looked around and finally settled and probably the last 12 or 13 years, we had a, a place there in Wasilla, which was close to Anchorage and obviously close to the main airport and uh, ways to get out into the boondocks from there. But all the shows were all the shows that we did, some twenty six shows, twenty to twenty six shows a year for sixteen years. We did in the outback, and uh, Audrey planned that, and we coordinated with different people. And sometimes it took a day or day and a half just to get to where we were going, and uh, finding the right crew to be out there at the same time. Uh, you know, there's one thing to be a cameraman. Uh, where the pavement and the cars run daily. It's something else to be a cameraman where you're putting up a tent and, and uh, eyeballing a, a grizzly bear that's eyeballing you while you're putting up your tent. So it took the right kind of camera guys and crew to go out there and do what we did in Alaska. And it was, that's uh, that'd be a lot of fun to write about and all the experiences we went through doing it. Well, the book is wonderful. The experiences that you share uh, – the insights too, I thought were fantastic. It's 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 compelling. It, there's of course some humorous stories, really uh, very special and uh, and vulnerable too. Larry Zonka, you really touched us. Thank you for your work. Thanks so much for your time today. My best to you and your family and Audrey. Thank her again for me. I really appreciate it. Especially happy day before Thanksgiving, sir. Let's uh, let's watch some football together and eat some <laughs> eat some bird and uh, okay. I'll enjoy it. But what an enjoyable time to have spent this with you, too. Congratulations on thank everything. You, putting, yeah, thank you, Paul, for putting me on with you. And I, I look forward when I spend some time to meet you in person and we can sit down and, and chat about some things that we only have to put on the air. <laughs> I love it. Fantastic. <laughs> thank you, Larry Zonka. Best to you. All right. See you. My thanks to Larry Zonka for joining us today. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. My thanks, of course, to our Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks, of course, to you, my wonderful audience on radio and podcast. Please be well, be safe. And I'm saying this to you every single episode because I want you to be safe from assault weapons. We do not need assault weapons in the hands of anyone but the military. 
Assault weapons are killing our children and grandchildren in the very places that they learn school. Let's do better. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. Have a wonderful, happy Thanksgiving and holiday season. Thanks, everybody, and we will see you next week. Today's show was edited for Ling. To hear the full interview, please check out our website for this episode and all episodes at notold-better.com or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and be sure to leave a five-star review or comment wherever you get your podcasts. Our Twitter feed is Not Old Better, and we're on Instagram at Not Old Better too. The Not Old Better Show is a production of NOBS Studios. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and I hope you'll join me again next time to talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody.